Welcome to She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. My name is Andrea Reimer, and I was elected to Vancouver City Council from 2008 to 2018. I teach about power and policy at the University of British Columbia. I'm a longtime community activist living in Vancouver, and I will be your host for this podcast, which is brought to you by the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. This is the third episode in our series, so I thought it'd be helpful to have a brief recap. In the first episode, we did a reality check on how households led by women and gender diverse people are faring within the larger housing crisis in Canada. The answer, not so well. We heard from experts that housing stability requires money and safety, and women and gender diverse people are much more likely to live in poverty or deal with violence. In our second episode, we met Hillary and Heather, two women who shared their stories about their experiences navigating a housing system that is stacked against them. However, Hillary and Heather have a head start over many women. They're both white, and while both had disabilities, they aren't visible disabilities. In today's episode, we're going to tackle what the housing crisis feels like when you're a woman with intersectional identities. Let's dive in. Intersectionality is a term coined in 1989 by Professor Kimberlay Crenshaw to describe how race, gender, disability, class, and other individual characteristics intersect with one another. It sounds like a simple concept, but she intended it to be a word that opens up a discussion about the deep structural and systemic barriers that prevent people with intersectional identities from accessing housing, employment, and other things. I can't do it justice here, so I would encourage you to check out her incredible TED Talk, where she explains both the origins of the word and how it works in practice. Intersectionality is why it's important to look beyond broad categories when making government policy. For example, we learned in the last episode that women living with disabilities make far less than men living with disabilities. So if policymakers are only looking at one broad category, such as people living with disabilities or newcomers or Indigenous, and they're making decisions about funding based on averages within those broad categories, they are vastly underserving those with intersectional identities in that category. And more often than not, it's women and gender diverse people that are being erased. This has a profound impact on housing access for women with intersectional identities. We met Victoria Barclay in our first episode. She's a researcher on a project called Finding Room for Families. This is Victoria talking about how hard it is to get information about women with intersectional identities and housing. Some of the work that we've done for the Finding Room for Families study um, on logistic, which used logistic regression to look at the 2018 Canadian Housing Survey, that quantitative work shows that women-led households are more likely to be unsuitable, unsuitably housed. And when we look at race and how that interacts with women's homelessness, we also see um, different numbers. So women who identify as non-white are more likely to be unsuitably housed. But again, when we look at statistics and quantitative information, it doesn't tell the full story, not just about the homelessness, but also about the identity intersections that we see. So we don't have the full story about how many Indigenous women are experiencing housing precarity, how many Black women are experiencing housing precarity, how many um, immigrant refugee women of color, how they're experiencing those issues because they're just not fully captured in that um, stati- in the statistics and the way that it's collected. As Carolyn Weitzman said in the first episode, what isn't counted doesn't count when it comes to government policy and funding. 
The stories you're about to hear give you a sense of what it's like to be invisible to government policies in a housing crisis. You met Lori at the end of our last episode, but this is her formal introduction. My name is Lori Dietz. Um, I was born in northern Saskatchewan um, in a place called Isle Cross, Saskatchewan, and I'm actually a 60 scoop survivor. So my home community is Pine House, where my mom lives, but I've never lived in that community. Um, I am just actually officially a First Nation as of June 21st of last year. And I am from Canoe Lake First Nation, again, a nation I've never even stepped foot on. So, As you can hear, Lori's identity is complex, and that has had a huge impact on her ability to access housing. You've actually heard clips from her in both the first and second episodes of the She, They, Us podcast, but this is the full story of her housing journey in her own words. As I said, like precarious housing, I, I lived in 43 homes and most of those were in my 20s. I was a 60 scoot and then I lived with my adopted parents and then I had a couple foster homes. And... Um, I lived a life I drank and I partied. So sometimes I got kicked out. Sometimes I just moved, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't want to pay rent. I'd rather go out. So I do that and just go sit in my sleep with my sister's couch for a month or so until I found something else. That kind of a lifestyle, like stay with friends for a little bit here and there. And I didn't think anything of it at the time because you're young and I was having fun, right? And of course, any pain or hardship, I didn't think about it and I just would drink and use drugs it stayed like that for quite some time until I had my son I sobered up when I got pregnant with my son um I somehow miraculously didn't get pregnant in all my 20s and I just before my 30th birthday or I got pregnant with my son and I was at the height of addiction like I went from like nearly dying with uh because of IV drug use to finding out I was pregnant and going are you kidding me like, turns out it was the best thing that happened to save my life, changed my life, and I, I haven't looked back. And uh, I lived uh, with his dad for his first two years of his life, but we didn't, we had a pretty volatile relationship. He was pretty angry. I was pretty angry. And there was a lot of anger and fighting. And I left him and went into a women's shelter. And then I went into low-income housing, and that suited me okay. I always find it found it stressful working as a low-income mom, and that 30% that you try and stay, and if you go over, it causes stress, and you got to call and report your employment income and housing support, and uh, that was always the most stressful thing. And I remember when I finally stopped three years ago, not because I, I'm entitled, I'm a student again, but the stress of not doing it is far greater than $300 a month baby. And um, that was, those would be the times when I started breaking away from some of those systems for, for stress factor. Right. And when I was able to move out of housing, like low income housing for the first time, and I moved on my own and I got a wonderful little main floor, three bedroom, um, apartment with me and my son and I had a garage it wasn't a heated garage but it was well insulated I didn't have to plug my car in all winter the I live in southern Saskatchewan so minus 40 some not plugging your car in it, I was so happy and 
when I moved into that house, we were actually just coming off, like, I mean, within weeks coming off of my son's father, he died because of lung cancer in 2016. It was a really short fight for him and he passed with lung cancer. And as you can imagine, for the next six or eight months was a bit of a struggle for me and my son. And um, when I moved in, one landlord, they were great. And then they sold it. And uh, a couple of times I paid rent a bit late and they didn't like that. And they come and said, sorry, we're moving into the house. I knew it was because of that. And they asked me to leave. And then, of course, because I, I was on unemployment at the time, on stress leave, basically. And I just took the cheapest thing I could find. And I just was... It was miserable. It was so defeating because I had to live in this house again that I wasn't proud of and I didn't like again for the next few months. Thankfully, that didn't last long. And I was able to actually, uh, actually, I was thankfully with my son's after his death with his money, I was able to get a much nicer house again and get that going in the right direction. And it was shortly after that when I very, very horribly lost a job and uh, took some a real drastic fall in my mental health. And then that's when I decided to go back to school. And so most of those times, especially in that time frame, my son's life, we moved every year almost. In my 20s, I was averaging three homes at least a, a year sometimes. So it was just these, you know, cycles of like change, so much change. Um, and through my recovery and different things I've done, you know, I remember he like hearing those little facts about moving being one of the most top five stressful things in your life. So what kind of effect does that have when you do that every year? And you experience that every year because it is, I'll tell you, it's stressful no matter what. And it's exhausting. And most of us are doing that while we're working and raising our children and doing all that stuff, right? So... The exhaustion that I played out because of, you know, precarious housing, undiagnosed ADHD, it's something that I've, I've shared with you before. I've shared with some women and that really kind of surprised me. It didn't shake me as bad because it just answered a lot of questions and uh, I was, I've been able to get some help. But because of those things, again, another thing that made it harder for me and now that I look back and I can see it. As you heard in her opening statement, Lori is a 60s scoop survivor and only recently gained her status as First Nations. She technically could access housing on reserve now, but that comes with its own challenges. And her entire life has been in Moose Jaw, where she has friends and support networks. I asked Lori if she can tell me what it feels like being an Indigenous woman renting housing off reserve. It is hard at the best of times <laughs> and it has been for years like i think back to years ago when i would call and uh people would answer their phone calls and i didn't even get viewings i got questions you know are you on welfare like right out are you first nations just by just by my voice and and that's defeating and it's humiliating actually so uh to even find someone that will rent to you and then let alone have insecure housing on top of that. So 
the situations that most women live in, and most people don't know that because as women, of course, we find other options and that's when we end up living with family members or, you know, men that we shouldn't be living in and, and different things like that. So I'm struggling too, because I, I, I have two very, very close women that, uh, um, very close friends of mine, one who left her husband and went home very shortly thereafter because didn't want to continue living in those circumstances of because she couldn't afford it. And uh, of a friend of mine who just come from the north trying to get a, you know, a head start here and couldn't find housing and has now gone back home. Our housing is getting worse and worse and worse here. Uh, it's if you don't have a home, I'm terrified for you because I even knowing being someone from my community of Musha, usually it's always been like, oh, I know somebody, you can figure it out. And that's not even helpful anymore. You literally just have to be there with a lot of money to offer a landlord when something comes up. My last question to Lori is about her hope for the future of housing for Indigenous women. Security is such a crazy thing for Indigenous women. It, it doesn't exist in our society. And it's the thing that we need most. Without it, we're desperately making decisions for our survival. And it's a scary place to live. I I guess I want to be realistic too, right? Because when you think too much, right? Because how does one solve that? But when we look and we talk about reconciliation and the things we can do, we hear this numbers and stats on missing and murdered Indigenous women. And then I can show you the many ways that we can just help improve those just a little bit. One of them that is ensuring all the Indigenous women you know have safe and secure housing. I'm blessed that somebody I know has done that for me. Um, I live in very safe and secure housing right now, owned by my friends. I actually take care of rental properties right now, which is something that I wouldn't do for student housing. And um, it's a neat little agreement and I have a wonderful home to live in. But especially this week, again, I'm in kind of a fearful place. I know that they're not coming home again for at least another year. I have another year of safety. And I know that I'll have a lot of notice when they do come home. And because they have two houses, they won't let me be homeless. So that is okay. But the dream of having your own home Every one of us knows we all have it. That's a human need that we all have. We all want. We will do anything to have our, a safe home place. That's what I did my my whole life. That's what we want. I would do anything to have a home that nobody could take from me. Indigenous women are not the only people with housing challenges. And housing is not the only discrimination challenge that women and gender diverse people with intersectional identities face. There are two pieces of the puzzle in housing affordability. The first is how much the rent costs, but the other is your income. If your income is higher, then the same rent can become affordable for you. In Canada, however, there is a substantial pay gap between men and everyone else. But then, even amongst women, there is a lot of difference as well. Indigenous women, women living with disabilities, and racialized women, especially newcomers, make far less. Meet Christine Carino. Hi, I'm Christine Carino, and I'm joining from um, East Vancouver. I've been in Metro Vancouver for the last 18 years. I immigrated from the Philippines. I currently live in a two-bedroom apartment with my family, myself, my husband, and three children, ages 12 to 17. We are close to public transit, uh, providing us early, easy access to downtown Vancouver and the rest of Metro Vancouver. 
And my children go to our catchment schools and we've found inclusion and belongingness with our local neighborhood house, Cedar Cottage neighborhood house. Compared to the stories we've heard so far, Christine's housing situation may seem almost ideal. But as she starts to tell her housing story, it becomes apparent that there are more challenges than meet the eye. I came to Canada in 2005 for a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of British Columbia. And um, from the Philippines, I arrived at a one-bedroom apartment. It was reserved for me by a colleague I had uh, during my PhD days in Tokyo. To this day, I am grateful that uh, Desiree, my friend, uh, back my apartment application, reserving as my reference and guarantor. Uh, she and her husband paid for the required rental deposit while I was in the Philippines, and I repaid them when I arrived. Rent was $770 a month. I can't believe it. <laughs> that was a one-bedroom apartment. I came with around $2,000 and uh, was left with around $600 because I had to pay for the deposit and the one-month rental. Um, and uh, thankfully, I got my first paycheck from UBC mm, on time. Uh, this first bedroom apartment eventually became home to my family. Uh, eventually, I had uh, within this Within that year, uh, I had a daughter, and then my husband uh, arrived uh, six months later, and then I gave birth, and we were a family of um, small family of three. But uh, after my maternity leave, I had to, of course, go back to the postdoc, and there was this huge challenge of obtaining affordable childcare. And I just had one kid at that time, but still, childcare was already a big problem. So we moved closer to my place of work. And for the next three years, we were fortunate to stay at the UBC campus of, uh, because there was low-cost housing for faculty and staff. It was a great space for uh, toddlers and preschool children. Um, eventually, in the three years that we were there, I had another child. So we had two kids, all under the age of three. It was fantastic. There were early literacy programs at um, the Commons Block, the Housing Community Center, Community Center. There were numerous children's playgrounds on campus and a forest, Pacific Spark, Spirit Park for backyard. But after my postdoc reality set in, um, you know, <laughs> an academic salary was really not enough to stay uh, on campus. And at that time, too, we were waiting for our permanent residency papers. So we moved to Surrey, where the rents were cheaper. It was a great uh, place because also the food was cheaper compared to the campus. Um, but it was a very brief stay of around five months uh, in a basement suite. Actually, when I remember our first night when we moved in, it was February, it was very cold. I think there was even snow and uh, it was the coldest night ever in my stay in North America. I've been traveling in the States and Canada and that was the first time that I really knew, experienced what bone chilling cold meant. Um, we were freezing that first night, and um, apparently the homeowner had adequate heat upstairs, but did realize that the centralized system was not distributing the heat. Um, and I just mentioned this because I also hear a lot of this anecdotes of um, you know renters renting basement suites and having to deal with the heat. <laughs> and most of these stories are from friends or co coming from tropical countries. And of course, heat always, um, heat and cold is a topic um, that comes up. So we eventually moved out uh, back to Vancouver to be closer to my husband's work. So our next home was a garden level suite in a house um, in what, what is called a detached housing in Canada. So the owners lived upstairs and we entered our suite through a back door through the garage. 
through a stinking garage. And every night at exactly 11 p.m., what sounded like heavy furniture being dragged upstairs was like every day. That was our life. And we could hear um, their TV, which was on until 3 a.m. Every night for around, I think, three months. We, we, and uh, we, I, when I remember when we moved in, everything was so dirty that um, and the stove was not working. And yet we we were expected to do to clean up the suite ourselves, which was kind of weird because in past housing we that we'd left, we usually clean up the house, clean up the suite, and we were moving to a dirty suite. So anyway, um yeah, we just lasted three months there. And fortunately, there was a suite available in the first apartment we lived in. Which we, so we were fortunate to come back to the suite we're living in right now, or to this apartment complex we're living in right now. And we've been here for the past 12 years. Um, and as our family has been growing, there, my kids, as I mentioned, are already 12, 13, and 17. We have been looking for a larger space for the past five years. However, rents for three bedrooms are beyond our budget. We have, uh, friends who have been moving out of their of uh, their rental suites or, or their houses, uh, their rentals, and um, we've been trying to take over the three bedrooms, but um, ninety nine percent of them uh, kept saying that they were moving out because it was some sort of renovation story. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so that's um, so where I, where we are right now is uh, we're still looking for rental. For a larger, uh, yeah, for a larger space for the family, um, with the pricing houses in Vancouver, my husband and I have lost hope of <laughs> ever buying our own our own space. Although Christine has a PhD and there are two working parents in her household, both of them are racialized newcomers. Statistically, her husband is likely to make twenty two percent less than a Caucasian man in Canada, and Christine herself. 40% less. Women of all backgrounds also lose working years to caregiver roles, either childcare or looking after elderly parents, which impacts income or eats into savings and the ability to absorb the housing crisis. I asked Christine about how it works having five people, including three teenagers, in a two-bedroom apartment. So with a two-bedroom apartment, uh, my two boys share a bedroom and then my daughter enjoys her own uh, bedroom and um, our living room converts into a bedroom for my husband and I at night and then we use it as a living room during the day. So when family and friends uh, from outside of Vancouver say that, oh, you know, they're so excited, they're coming to visit and we tell them, hey, yes, you're welcome, but not uh, to stay in our house. I asked Christine what she pays for rent. Um, what I probably failed to mention earlier is that our apartment is actually rent controlled. It's not social housing, but apparently uh, what I learned from a newspaper article on the Vancouver Sun years ago is that this apartment was um, constructed on city-owned land. And the developer who also now manages the apartment um, actually had condos uh, a development two stations away and they were allowed by the city to put up all these condos um, with the agreement that they would put up this apartment 
and have rent control, rent controlled, um, rent controlled housing. So while we're paying right now, you won't believe it. Um, we've moved here for in, we've been here for twelve months, twelve years, and we're just paying a thousand five hundred plus for two bedrooms. In this current housing, um, you know, cost like who would want to move out of this apartment? This is a critical point. Most subsidized housing is subject to government rules that wouldn't allow her family of five to live in a two-bedroom apartment, but this housing is run by the developers, and they've allowed her to have an apartment smaller than guidelines says she should have. And I also want to actually thank the management of this apartment because they've grandfathered us. When we came in, the apartment manager knew that I was going to give birth and we will have three children. Um, And I actually... Uh, laud this the compassion from from this company it's we're not the only family actually with this situation in this apartment complex Um, they are aware there's a housing crunch in vancouver and um, that's why we're still being allowed to stay in this apartment i ask her what the barrier is to getting a bigger space and what her ideal housing would be like the biggest barrier for us is cost because we just can't afford $2,500 $2,500 or $3,300. Um, in fact, was it just last week that I saw on Instagram that the average cost of a one-bedroom apartment in Vancouver is apparently $2,500. So if we're looking at three bedrooms, that would be $4,500, $5,000, and we just can't afford that at all. Um, with this reality, we intend to stay in this two-bedroom apartment. My daughter is... 17 she's already looking at um, university going to university outside of bc and uh, in a year or two we'll be reclaiming that one bedroom if i will think of the ideal place where we live in i would still choose this apartment it's readily accessible to um, downtown to other places in metro vancouver we're close to the community center the catchment schools are fantastic uh, we've already built our Um, sense of belonging in this community. We have friends, uh, we're active in the organizations that are here in the neighborhood. But Christine and her family's tenure is not guaranteed. The problem that I foresee is that, for example, one SkyTrain station away, uh, there's already this um, application for condos going up. This is in Broadway and Commercial, in that Safeway complex. And then also, uh, where we live, there are also um, some plans to. Uh, you can see the neighbors; they're selling blocks. <laughs> uh, you know, there's this blocks of housing that are being put up for sale. And uh, looking around Kingsway, looking around the area where we live, there's just so much development that I know. In a few years, probably our housing would also disappear, and. That is my greatest fear. Like, where we do we go? By that time, probably my husband and I, you know, will be, um, will not be at our prime in working. And we, and right now, we've also heard many stories of older, um, Vancouver residents, immigrants who are being evicted because there are developments coming up, and that brings the question: like, where will we go? Maybe back to the Philippines. <laughs> yeah. I asked Christine what her hope is for the future of housing. For me, the issue on 
housing is not standalone issue. There are several other factors that feed into it. For example, one, um, we can't get the housing that we need because we don't have adequate incomes for that. And so I, we could tie this in as well with the issue of employment, finding jobs. We are bringing in 500,000 um, newcomers, according to the federal uh, immigration um, plan. And many of these newcomers will be starting from the bottom. And you expect them to um, have access, or you, and, and we expect them to be able to pay for housing that is beyond their income. And I also would want to touch about living wage. Just recently, the Vancouver uh, City Council um, sort of um, did not backtrack on supporting living wage. And if we are allowing businesses and even the city government themselves to pay people to ex to expect people to expect Vancouver residents to live with it below the living wage what kind of housing can you imagine they will be able to access my hope for the future of housing at least in Vancouver that the city council the present city council that has not you know that has backtracked on the living wage and again, last week has come up with some decisions that seem to support more those who already have the resources. I hope the city council will rethink their policies, their decision-making to support us who have less resources because we contribute as well to whatever this city is and we should not be discarded. We should be given the chance to continue living in Vancouver because we should be given the chance to live in Vancouver. That's all. A couple of notes here on the references that Christine made in that last clip. In 2017, Vancouver City Council passed a living wage policy that required Vancouver to pay its own staff and staff hired by contractors what is referred to as a living wage. The living wage is calculated as the minimum amount a person needs to live in Vancouver and still be able to afford rent, food, transportation, and childcare. In early 2023, the newly elected city council announced that they were scrapping the living wage policy. For reference, the living wage in Vancouver is set at $24.08 per hour for 2023. For a full-time worker, that equals roughly $50,085 per year. A city councillor in Vancouver makes $96,442, plus they get travel and other expenses covered. A couple of weeks later, Vancouver City Council decided to decrease the empty homes tax from 5% of assessed value to 3% of a property's assessed value. The tax was the first of its kind in Canada and was created by Vancouver City Council six years ago to discourage people from keeping properties empty and encourage them to rent them out. The City Council also voted to return $3 million that had been collected by the empty homes tax last year to developers. That money had been scheduled for building more affordable housing, similar to the kind of housing that Christine lives in. That's almost it for this episode, but before we finish, I want to introduce you to Avery Shannon. My name is Avery Shannon. My pronouns are they, them. 
I am a queer, trans, non-binary, person of color settler, and I am a youth adopted out of foster care and am multiply disabled, including being autistic and a wheelchair user. I am primarily an activist, far too often behind a megaphone. And I say far too often because I wish the world didn't have so many issues to be worked on. Um, I've advocated in mainly Indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. We will hear more from Avery in the next episode, where we will learn about the specific barriers that they and other gender diverse people face to accessing housing. Thanks for joining us today. This is She, They, Us, a podcast about making room and housing for women and gender diverse people. To find out more about the She, They, Us campaign, you can visit the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing webpage, where you'll also find resources from this episode and can add your voice to the army of women and gender diverse people fighting to make room in housing.